Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters for the week ending Friday 21st of May. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on the podcast this week, you'll hear Rachel Mazza talking about Heart is a Wasteland happening at Rising Festival. And Jez introduces us to the reality TV show, I Shouldn't Be Alive. One of the greatest shows ever. Uh, also, we got to chat to Richard Suada from the St Kilda Film Festival, which is happening right now. And also, Anthony Lowenstein um, came in for Brass Tax and talked us through the uh, Israel-Palestine conflict. Elizabeth McCarthy was in studio so close we could touch her, reviewing the Stella Prize winning The Bass Rock by Evie Wilde. And we cross-examined barrister Tim Farhall ahead of Victorian Law Week. <laughs> Triple R. Rachel Mazza is a television and stage acting legend, presenter and director of Heart is a Wasteland, don't laugh, in which storytelling <laughs> and live music combine in a cross-country, whiskey-filled love story. It's a Nilbidgeri Theatre Company production showing at Rising Festival and to tell us about it, the company's artistic director joins us now. Rachel, welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you so much for having me. This is so good to be here. It is, isn't it? It's so good to be. I'm still like in the kind of, you know, like here we are, real humans. Yeah. I know, what a novelty, right? It is, yeah. I mean, I'm loving the mixed hybrid going on here. Yeah, we've got Jess there on uh, on Zoom. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you guys are having a great time. (laughs) Yeah, 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 we're having croissants and coffee. (laughs) Um, So tell us about this is brand new and a restaging all at once? Yeah, so it had a premiere of its first, uh, you know, <coughs> existence uh, with the Malthouse uh, Theatre. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, long story short, the, that production um, wasn't tourable and there was a lot of interest around the work. So John Harvey basically uh, has a long relationship with Ilbidgeri Theatre, uh, the writer, and um, and used to. And actually when I started 13 years ago, he was the general manager. Anyway, long story. Um, yeah, so uh, he was an opportunity to revisit the work um, and... and this is that moment where it's like we get to revisit the work, like yeah. literally rework the work. What did we learn from that season? Um, so, yeah, there's been a redraft of the script, mm. um, totally new casting, new creatives, new everything, and, and I get to direct it. So, Sweet. Yeah. yeah. What did you learn from the season? Uh, there was basically, and this is kind of the nature of make and work, mm. you're kind of what you're discovering in the room the first time you're working it with actors, you know, mm. and you're making big decisions, you're like, like, okay, all of that gets cut, let's, you know, so there's you, there's decisions that are made on the run. To yeah. be, to, and so what's fantastic about getting to visit a work is you get to kind of massage that and tweak it and, you know, look at those bold decisions. So literally there's been some shifting around. There was, I mean, basically what you're always looking for in a work is, you know, the dramaturgical arc and, and the kind of, you know, the truth of those characters and so there were there was some like the big reveal came out and there was like they were sort of sandwiched together and it's like eh, nah come on let's let's split, massage that around and yep. have this one happen here and this one happen here anyway mm. all that kind of yeah t- tweaking and, and uh, are we talking an on-stage road trip essentially it's a this couple young couple musician uh she's been doing the kind of adelaide to darwin um, backwater and middle of nowhere kind of gig circuit um, while she's trying to get custody of her son, mm-hmm. of her of her mum. Uh, she bumps into this kind of hunky, awesome 
cool guy uh, at one of these backwater pubs who's also been has got his kind of stuff that he's dealing with. Um, anyway, they, they their, their worlds collide and this kind of crazy relationship um, starts up. So both of them, in a, in a sense, are, actually it's a beautiful story of kind of healing really. These two have got their stuff that they're running away from and by this kind of fortuitous collision of these of their lives. Yep. They they they're kind of not great for each other, but they're great for each other because they 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 they're able to call each other to task, hold the mirror up to each other if you mm. like. So it's enough. By the end of the play, you get the feeling they're going to get their shit together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> By the end of the play. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it's uplifting. I um sorry, I'll jump. I I saw the original production and really really loved it. I remember when you came in to talk about it. You talked about how. Um, in the the writing of it, there was a lot of, um, I guess, you created theatre that that didn't have to explain things. It was just you had there was a lot of assumed knowledge in the in the audience that people would knew about know about kind of I guess traditional you know and the culture of First Nation people. Um, I, I, I guess my question is, are you leaning into that a bit more, or is that kind of a, a bit the same? Uh, I guess, well, on that, on that, you know, what's kind of so refreshing, like for me as a person who's been working in this space of making black theatre for, you know, my life, um, Mm. is, is, is this work sits quite, um, ahead of the pack, if you like, in terms of it's a very contemporary, complex piece. They are absolutely blackfellas, but it's not the black, it's not your politics on your sleeves theatre. Yes. Don't get me wrong, I love politics on your sleeve theatre. <laughs> <laughs> but this is, a, this is a beautifully complex human story and they just happen to be blackfellas. So for me, it becomes very political. It is very political in that, in that act itself. So we do, we have these complex, three dimensional, very human blackfellas, very contemporary, and and with all that diversity of experience, um, as opposed to the two dimensional cardboard cutout character characters of blackfellas that we're used to seeing. Mm. So mm. so that in itself becomes a political act because you've got this beautifully human story, and it's like oh. They're actually just like me. Yeah. <laughs> but you, different. You've touched on it uh, in terms of the excitement of getting out and seeing people face to face, but what does it mean to be a part of rising literally as Melbourne rises out of what we've been through? I know. What an appropriate name, isn't mm. it? It's like you're of the rising out of the ashes. Yeah. It, well, to be in a rehearsal room for yeah. one and p- playing on the floor and, you know, I'm, I am like in second heaven is so extraordinary. And then this extraordinary festival and the, um, I mean, it's a new festival. Yeah. Like it's, a, and you can see that in the programming, like the incredible diversity of works, the, the really bold, uh, you know, very kind of risque programming that's happening in this mm. festival. It's going to be very exciting. It's, um, it's funny, you know, look, you look at the kind of t- timing of COVID and it's kind of like, the kind of crisis we needed to have as a, well, as a country, but certainly in terms of just sort of the shake-up within the arts, it's like, yeah, let's start thinking about things differently. Yeah. And the fact that the festivals across the country have discovered local talent. <laughs> like, oh, you couldn't see my expression then. <laughs> like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, I've got talent in my own city. Like, it's extraordinary. Yeah. It's a real celebration of local talent. And... and uh, and 
financially, the festivals are doing better than they've ever done because they're not spending the trillions of billions of dollars to get some flashy whatnot from mm. overseas over, investing that money into your local communities, and you're getting your local communities, your local town is wanting to see local artists because it's irrelevant. Yes. You know, so it's it's a win-win. It's mm. been this extraordinary, uh, oh, I could actually run a festival without having to fly, you know, <laughs> yeah. fly in and spend millions and trillions of dollars. Well, speaking of local talent, you've got uh, Gary Watling doing the music mm. for the production, who I don't know much about, actually, but it do- does seem like music's very much at the heart of this production. Can you speak about the music and also Gary, yeah. Gary's involvement? Yeah. Um, I actually, because music's I've always, it's always been a part of my life. I grew up with a guitar in my hand, me and my sis always singing. So I've noticed when I reflect back at the works that I'm doing, it's like any, if they've got music in them, music's in them. Like I'm like, I'm, I'm a big fan of the music. So, you know, for me, it's just one of the, the, the languages of theatre. I think mm. you've got a language. Anyway, <laughs> go off on a rant. Anyway, um, yes, yeah, so uh, with the band that we had in Jack Charles versus The Crown, that basically it was the three-piece band in that one and, and it was through those musicians that I discovered this extraordinary, incredible Wiradjuri guitarist, um, Gary Watling, and he is like next-level genius, like wow. Extraordinary, um, you know. Like uh, when we started talking about the show, and I sent him because the music has been written by um, beautiful um, musician Lydia Fairhall mm-hmm. and her band Lydia Fairhall and the She Oaks. Um, anyway, so the music uh, already is is well, well, written specifically for this piece. It, it really speaks to the kind of um, this road journey, but also this journey. This inner journey of these two mm. on a kind of very spiritual, dreamlike level. Anyway, folk slash country. Anyway, discover this amazing Gary Watling guitarist and I throw him a couple of these tracks and I'm like, oh, you know, I'm just, you know, the last, that first production again, uh, they were very kind of indie, um, grungy, uh, the beautiful Anna Lieb site translation of those songs and I was kind of like oh well what direction would we go with that music so it was actually when I'm wanting to really bring out the country that that thing oh, uh, mm-hmm. uh this it, you know that this is a story about country <laughs> I was like ah this feels right anyway Gary Watling happens to be a beautiful country guitarist as well um anyway threw him one of the tracks and and he kind of went like overnight, came back with, oh, something like this. And it was like... Overnight. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> serious freak. Uh, and it was like, it's now my... Um, ringtone. My ringtone. <laughs> like, this guy is a freak. Yeah. So, yeah, it's pretty, it's going to be, the music is going to melt your hearts. Cool. Yeah. You mentioned you've been artistic director for 13 years, but you were director of Stolen in, what, nearly 30 years ago now. Not to, I didn't mean to do that to you. It can't be 90, that long. 1992. Anyway, it was a long time ago. <laughs> so yeah. uh, when, when you look back at then, how have you changed much or have you been sort of rock solid? You know, like you, you talk to artists and they might look back at something they did and go, oh, I'm embarrassed by that or I've changed so much I don't even recognise well, anymore. I mean, it's funny you bring up that one because that was – I had done one show. Like I started out as an actor and – um, studied at Whopper, came out into the industry. I was like, oh my god, I'm so excited! I'm going to be, I can be, I can be anything. And then very quickly realised that was the, the limited number of roles for black fellas, and and because you've got a little tattoo, an invisible tattoo on your head saying black fella, was like, oh, somehow I'm only going to get black fella roles. Is the the, the small mindedness of the sector right. in, in my day? Mm-hmm. Um, 
So that, you know, at, the, at that time, it, well, I felt really kind of frustrated and imprisoned by that kind of curse. What felt like, it, you know, I was like, ah, why am I being boxed here? Mm. And then, in, and, and that has done a total 180 degree flip. It's like, I'm so loving that I get this extraordinary privilege and honour to work in this space of making yeah. blackfella storytelling. Though, going from an actor to a director was a massive step because you go from the passenger seat to the driving seat, essentially. Yeah. yeah. So, Stolen was my second um, directing. So, this, the, the original production was in 92, was um, actually Wesley Enoch. Mm-hmm. And I'm then I directed the education program, which then toured for three years mm-hmm. um, that, as part of that collaboration with Playbox. It was known as then Malthouse. Um, and, yeah, it was my first, um, it was second, go at directing. And, actually, I can still see some characteristics. I'm like, yeah, that's my style. Oh, I'm so. really interested in theatre without all the bells and whistles. I've always had a major aversion to massive, big, clunky sets where I, you look at it and you go, all I can see is money. Yes. I'm like, you just spent, what, 30000 building an entire house with functional taps and showers. And, you know, it's just like, why? You've left nothing for me to imagine. Mm. I'm like, this is a, this is a, come on, give me something to do in yeah. the audience. You know, like I want to, you know that beautiful experience you have when someone reads you a book or, you, or you're listening to an audio book or whatever, yeah. and you get to do all the, the work of yeah. imagining the world. And, you know, that, that experience you have where you w- then watch the film and it's like, Mine was so That's right. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to go see a show and be distracted so by the plumbing. So I'm really, as a director, I want to peel all that away and it's like let's how simple and 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 how much room can we make to 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 allow the audience to come in and dream the rest of it? Yeah. Um, that said, uh, I'm, you know this is a very open space. This hut is a wasteland, but we are using. I'm working with one of the most other extraordinary artists is Sean Bacon. Um, he's white fella, um, but uh, we've got a, I've got a long history of working with him with quite a few of our shows. Um, originally, beautiful one day. Um, and he is the mon- one of the most phenomenal AV artists. Uh, it c- comes from the Version 1.0 company, Sydney-based company that was working in documentary theatre. Powerful, oh, my God, don't muck around theatre. Um, stunning. Anyway, so there's going to be this uh, wall. I mean, that's the only thing in the space, actually, is this kind of these walls of a textural AV spaces yep. and really kind of dreamlike sort of truncated grabbing moments so when we're in a hotel room it's start it's very heightened how how we're playing with it anyway because we're playing with this there's there's the literal journey and then there's the inner journey (laughs) yeah (laughs) well tell us tell us the morning's running out on us tell us what we need to know where is the space for a start Oh, my God. They're going to clear out the workshop space at their malt house, you know, that be those big rusty buildings. So that big space, which is where they build sets, they're clearing all that out. Oh, that's so great. literally 12 metre high, 12 metre wide, massive space. Yeah, which has been one of the challenges, actually. It's kind of like, oh, my gosh, because this show is designed for touring. Yes. So to, to go into small theatres. Yeah. And I'm like, hmm, okay, so this is now going to fill that massive wow. space. But, um, yeah. We've we've absolutely achieved that with these extraordinary kind of um, uh, well panels, yeah. if you like that that have become projection Brilliant. surfaces. Well, it's all happening June two to five as part of Rising uh, Festival. Go to Rising Melbourne for tickets and further information. Uh, the show is Hard as a Wasteland, and we've been talking with the uh, company's artistic director Rachel Mazza. Rachel, thanks so much for coming in.
Such a joy. Look forward to coming in again. You guys are awesome. Melbourne's own Triple R. Do you still do the thing where um, you, you have to watch a show with your, with your partner? Like, oh, don't watch it without me. Oh, those days are over now. <laughs> really? Um, <laughs> I'm sorry to hear it. <laughs> I saw, yeah, I saw Joel Creasy. I think he was watching something with their interstate. And they were oh, watching yes. something at the same time. I did see that tweet. Yeah, and I was like, oh, no. Nah. As in, they started the show at the same time separately. Yeah, yeah. they start. They did. They was in, they were living separately, and therefore a way to feel connected is to press play simultaneously. Yeah, Cat's like, into. I think Cat's a that. fan of that. Um, I like it. Well, we don't do it very often, but um, what have, there has been a couple of shows where. I can't remember what they are. Anyway, but the latest one, she sent me a text yesterday and she goes, um, I shouldn't be alive. One of the best shows ever. Oh, all right. Did yeah. you know about this? No. Yeah, I was no. telling Sam about this before. I shouldn't be alive. Um, it's like just reenactments of people that shouldn't be alive that <laughs> survived. <laughs> like, right. Yeah, full on. So it sounds like Hamish and Annie's real stories, but just about death, life and death situations. Yeah, but no, no, no lols. <laughs> oh, dead set. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's just like, you know, um, this team of uh, people were trekking through the jungle when everything went wrong and then, you know, it's just about, oh, this guy crashed his plane or this, these people. Anyway, I'm, I'm a big fan. I think it's been around for, I think... It, for decade, a decade maybe, yeah. like it's quite old. Um, there's three seasons of it on Amazon Prime, and Cassette Texas going, I shouldn't be live is on because we don't we catch it every now and again on like late at night on Channel Seven or something like that. Um, but yeah, she was like, oh, and, and then she said that's something we could watch together, and I ignored that second text. And was like, no, nah, I'm too excited. Kicking on, really? Yeah, right. I'm like, that's per- that's exactly what I want to watch right yeah. now. That's solo, guilty, cheap viewing, isn't it? That's not shared viewing. Well, she thinks it's shared. Yeah, well, yeah. I'm with you. Yeah, I thought. Anyway, I I have engaged how upset she is about the fact that I did start watching. Does she it. know? Yeah, she yeah. knows because we've got a shared account, so she's obviously. Might, but also maybe I'm just thinking of this now. Maybe she was logging on to have a look. Yeah, maybe she was going to watch it. Well, we've got shared accounts, so I see you know kicking on with Bridgerton or some shit that I yeah. care about, <laughs> and so, so I'm, I'm happy with that. Yeah. Oh, you know, puts a few crowns under the belt, and then I'm like, all right, well, you know, I'll do that on my own. But yeah, yeah the, the the this show, I, I also, if I was an actor, would love just. I feel like acting in a reenactment would be so good. Oh, and this is why it's a good show because they're good reenactments. Yeah, high production values. Yeah, really high. I think the first one I watched was about a paraglider that got sucked up into the atmosphere (laughs) and, yeah, was so cold, like passed out and then woke up again when they were tumbling to the ground because the parachute was all... And then got that out of the way and then landed. Anyway, shouldn't be alive, but is. And it was just, it was fascinating. I remember that story. Yeah. And the people who, 
that happen to their telling the story? Yeah. Yeah, right. So it's them like sitting and then oh, sometimes there's people that don't survive and, you you know, it's trying to work out, well, which character haven't we heard the real person? Oh, like well, this real person, we haven't heard from them yet. But then sometimes like you think, oh, there, they totally died. Yeah. But then right at the end they come in with like, yeah, and then I, I didn't think I was going to make it. And I was like, oh, my oh. God, you were there the whole time. You're alive. And what a beautifully uh, titled show when the, the titular catchphrase would come up so often yeah. because when I hear about the paraglider, what the first thing I think is he shouldn't be alive. Shouldn't be alive. <laughs> Just saying it constantly. <laughs> <laughs> he shouldn't be alive. <laughs> well, it was a sheep, but anyway. Oh, it? was it really? Yeah, yeah, yeah woman. Um, and oh. then yeah, I know it's so good. And so I started. I started watching it, and then I had to. I only watched like the first twenty minutes or something, and then I had to go get ready. I had a gig last night. And I was so, like, I went to this gig and was on early. I was so excited because I got to leave at a reasonable, I'm like, this is going to be perfect. I'll get on the tram and go home and then I'll be able to watch the rest of the, rest of the episode. Oh, Ooh. yeah, yeah. And then I'm just waiting at the tram stop and Cass sends me a text going, did you start watching? I shouldn't oh. be on without me. And I was like, oh. I said, yeah, but I stopped. <laughs> but I stopped, you know. And and she said, I, I, you know, I want us to watch that together. Mm. I'm like, okay, can we watch it tonight? And she goes, no, I'm tired. I'm yeah. going to bed. I'm like, all right. Exactly. All right. I feel as though if you introduce this your viewing buddy to the thing and then they get carried away, mm. you still get points. I feel like you're still in, you're spiritually still there with the viewing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you introduce them to the world. That's what I like, you know. Anyway, I, um, I, had, I, I didn't watch any more of it, mm-hmm. um, but can I, I really want to. Can I just quickly ask, did mm. the paraglider land in a different country? No, I don't think so. Oh, because yeah. I was under the impression that the paraglider went so far up into the stratosphere, or little oxygen, yeah. the earth rotates and then you land down miles away from where you took off. Or you land in the same spot. Christ. Because you go up and the earth turns. Oh, but yeah. But tra- tra- you travel with the earth. Dead set. I tell Maybe. You, one I thing, don't know. Well, one thing we know for a fact, she shouldn't be alive. She shouldn't be alive. <laughs> Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. The St Kilda Film Festival is Australia's largest and longest-running short film fest, turning the spotlight on exceptional films by both emerging talent and short works by accomplished industry professionals. Its opening is tonight, and to tell us what's in store this year, we're joined in studio by Director of the St Kilda Film Festival, Richard Sawada. Welcome back to Breakfasters. Yeah, yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be in this studio in person. I think uh, last year we were all on a screen and we were. little corners. Okay, yes. Like, yeah, you had a lovely sports. garden, I remember that. <laughs> oh, I I still yeah. do have a lovely yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a good memory, Jess. Uh, now, this is your second year as director. Oh, yes. All right. What, what, how have things evolved? What's new this year? What excites you? New this year against last year, of course, is the ability to be uh, to operate in the physical environment, which is just great. Yeah. 
being back in cinemas is fantastic. We were just talking about it off air. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's just so fantastic to be back in cinemas, especially uh, we're particularly using the Astor Cinema, the Astor Theatre in St Kilda, which is was recently voted within the top ten of one of the most beautiful cinemas in the world. Oh, uh, not right. just in Australia, but in the world, uh, which is not surprising. It's magnificent. It's one of a kind in Australia. Yeah. Uh, been in operation since 1936 or something ridiculous. Uh, and uh, But it's so, it's so fantastic to, to be there and hang out there. Uh, the screen is monstrous, uh, so you know that's a that's a big thing. And tonight, the opening night is pretty well looking sold out, which is great, terrific. And, uh, and as a part of our um, uh, life there at the at the Astor, we're doing a special Made in Victoria program. Actually, two Made in Victoria programs, which are selling extraordinarily well, which is a really great testament to the support of the local community, not just filmmaking community, to locally made works, which is uh, really awesome. And also their the desire to get back into cinemas, which is brilliant. Mm. Mm. So what's a, what program have you wrangled together? Oh, well, look, uh, I'm, I'm kind of a curator by trade. I don't, I don't want to sound highfalutin or anything <laughs> about it, but like, I really like looking at the patterns between things, the way things work together. I love jigsaw puzzles. So it's probably a jigsaw puzzle type approach that I take to it, like looking at how all the bits fit together to make a complete picture. So in the online environment, uh, there's about 15 or so individually um, curated programs along particular thematics, like LGBTQIA plus programs. There's like a horror program. There's a, a science fiction and fantasy program. There's a really, really beautiful coming of age program, which is so fantastic. I don't know about you guys, but I really like coming of age films. They have such a beautiful innocence and I think such a lovely, often autobiographical feel to them. Mm. They're, they're quite lovely. So there's, there's, there's that. Um, and uh, there's, uh, there's a program uh, uh, that I've called Body Language, which one of the things that emerged in the program when we were putting it together was that there was the films were really starting to look a little more deeply at the relationships of characters and the, the tiny nuances between uh, characters rather than, you know, big moments and big casts and, and that sort of thing. So things I found this year were much more um, thoughtful uh, and so the body language program that I put together, I really love it actually. It, it really looks at characters that move around each other like almost like a dance. Uh, and the, even the dramas, there, there is a couple of dance films in the program, but even the dramas in there are like they could have been directed by choreographers because of the way the characters move and weave around each other with uh, really not much spoken. So, um, so yeah, there's 15 of those programs. I'm very proud of it. You know, it's come together really quite well. And how big is it a deal that you're an Academy Awards qualifying event? Oh, well, look, it's a very, very big deal, especially if you're nominated, if you win an award during, uh, for the St Kilda, during the St Kilda Film Festival. Mm. So the winners of various um, categories, we've got um, uh, 13 categories or so in the awards, which are happening on the 29th, the closing night, uh, are eligible for Academy consideration, uh, which is amazing. Uh, and uh, it's a very rare opportunity. And look, I don't mind saying as a film fan, just me mm. personally, like dealing with the Academy, it's kind of like really fun. Uh, <laughs> and, and like, it's it's like, you know, when like early on this year, we were, we were having some dealings with the Academy, talking about the rules and this and that, and can we do this and can we do that? Because it's all a little bit different with COVID and screening online against yeah. what what kind of was happening before in the physical environment. Uh, and you kind of walk away from those conversations. And I think, Rick, 
how did you get here? You're talking to the academy. Like, you know, it's just such, you know, the magic dust kind of yeah. just rubbing off on me, let alone the effect that it can have on the filmmakers, which is a major yeah. thing for, for filmmakers. And we're really proud to be part of that relationship. So what are you getting, like an email that says sally at oscars.net <laughs> Well, well uh, kind of actually, yes. Uh, really? And when, uh, you know, when I was talking to the guy uh, at the Oscars who we deal with, I said, man, can I just have an, an email address that is dot oscars.org? <laughs> Can I have that, please? Just, just that. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's one of those lovely things about being involved in the industry. You just don't know where the tentacles and the tributaries, you know, go to, which is really quite lovely. Mm-hmm. It's fun. And w- w- tell us about some of these programs, the like the development program. Oh yeah, look, you know, a big part of the St Kilda Film Festival is uh, to provide professional development and networking opportunities. You know, it's really. Uh, especially over the last year, it's so important for filmmakers to be able to talk to each other uh, and to you know feed off each other ideas and uh, others' ideas and build collaborations and, and that sort of thing. It's also really, really super important for audiences and people just interested in cinema to be able to understand the science behind it. You know, how does it work? What happens? You know, how, you know, how, how do you use special effects, live special effects on set and that sort of thing? So um, uh, traditionally the film festival has had a component called the big picture which is a professional development day. Um, we're doing it this year at the JMC Academy in South Melbourne and a couple of other places just a- around the uh, around that area in South Melbourne, which has really st- got a really strong screen uh, business um, orientation. There's mm. lots of VR companies and game developers and a little cinema and, and that sort of thing there. So, you know, that day is packed with, with stuff. We've tried to make the festival as accessible as we can, so all the professional development activities are f- completely free. Um, there's probably upwards of 25 of them, you know, looking at... Come on. Yeah, there's so many different fun things that's in this program. Like, it starts with navigating intimacy for screen. Yeah. <clears throat> Michaela Bannis and... She's like, great too, I gotta yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, it's just something you wouldn't think about is... Like, and I've got a friend that's an actor and he was yeah. talking about how he had to do, you know, an intimate scene yeah. and how orchestrated it is. Oh, and, yeah. Because it's, you know, you've got to, you know, check in with each other and go, oh, I'm going to put my hand here and then I'm going to, you know, do that. And that's it's just right. fascinating. That's right. yeah. yeah, and people, you know, you you can't be here on the set. You've got to go. You've got to stand over there. It's really, um, really super interesting. Mm. And, you know, just to pull out a couple of things that I really like in that, you know, you can see a little bit of me and some of these sessions, which I hope, you know, comes through in the entire program, mm-hmm. actually. Uh, like uh, there's a, a session looking at working with guns and ammunition and dangerous yes. props on set, yeah, right. which like, you know, because you see so many genre films, even from, you know, from all kinds of filmmakers, from all young kids, actually, like Steven Spielberg and such, you know, mm. when he first started making movies, it was like action films with, um, you know, pretend guns and gunshots and all that sort of thing. So we've got like a working with guns and ammo kind of type. We've got two, actually. Of that. <laughs> <laughs> Just got to squeeze them in. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, working with makeup and prosthetics on set and those kind of things. You know, these are things that you pay to learn, uh, but we're doing them for free at high level. You know, they're totally professionally run and all that sort of thing. And, um, yeah, working with soft, various software um, packages and um, writing scripts for games, non, non-linear narratives and the whole thing. So, 
Yeah, that's. I'm really super pleased with that. That's going to be really great. That's going to be nice and sunny too. Yeah. <laughs> so you split between the Asta and the Alex Theatre. Yeah, that's right. The closing closing day is at the Alex, uh, where we have the awards. We've got a really great tribute to Bob Mazza with the, the um, you know, legendary Indigenous actor and activist with his daughters Lisa and Rachel Mazza, who are great artists in their own mm. right and performers and such. So they'll be reflecting on his life and career, and we'll be screening the film Barbecue Area, one of the great subversive oh, it's uh, so funny oh it's awesome yeah it's just unbelievably great so we've, we've been working with the abc archive actually and accessing some of the material that they've got there so you know that's uh that's going to be really sensational and then the awards as well uh and then there's a, a documentary about uh, murka moira as well uh at uh screening that night uh yeah so a split between the aster and the uh and and the alex which is uh first time for more than a year in yep. venues for us. And is, is uh, the opening night tonight, is it sort of your opening night as well? Does last year count? Uh, yeah, last year counts because we it, it totally does actually because we had to think really really super fast because mm. uh, we're right at the pointy end of the like the the whole collapse of Western civilization. <laughs> so um, so we, so we engineered like an opening night which was lots of fun. You know, with an MC, it was all online with an MC and speeches and you know the films of course and a few gags that I threw in and this and that. Uh, and so. Uh, and then after after that, you know, we had a number of film festivals and such ring us and say because they were coming up too, and they were trying to they were going online, they were trying to figure out how to present online properly, and they said, "Oh, how'd you do that? And what what happened there?" And rah rah. rah. So I take that, you know, as a great compliment to the whole team, mm. uh, but also like a, you know, it was a proper opening night. Yeah, you know, it was lots of fun. We all had, you know, as a team, we all had our own little thing going on, little family parties, and you know. Coon and Jats and, you know, <laughs> cooler bar casks and all that. You know, so it's all, it all good. But you can't beat opening night at the Aster tonight. Oh, the Asta. Well, look, like I said, it's almost sold out, uh, and uh, it's going to be uh, a, a really big night. You know, there's uh, an after party for everyone. You know, it's not exclusive to this or that. So uh, we're looking forward to that, and really looking forward to seeing all our friends. Particularly looking forward to seeing all the filmmakers and mm. having them see their films on the big screen for the first time in many instances. Brilliant. Uh, well, the festival runs from today to the 29th of May. Yeah. Uh, for further information, go to St Kilda Film Festival. That's it. And we've been speaking. Anything else you want to go off your chest? Oh, <laughs> well, how much time have you got? Are you going to test no, me with the no. frog nose? Test me with the frog nose. Yeah, yeah. Well, all right, let's go. Here's a silence, a bit of audio for you to judge. I got nothing. Uh, Richard Sawada, great to chat in person and congratulations. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Triple R. For brass tax with his perspective on the current Israel-Palestine conflict, we welcome back to Breakfast's independent journalist, author and filmmaker, who until recently was based in East Jerusalem, Annie Lowenstein. Annie, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Morning. Uh, Morning. Can you um, just give us, as far as you can understand at the moment, the, the latest? I know you're not on the ground and you're consuming what we are, but just to lay the scene for us. The situation's pretty grim, as anyone who follows it will know. Essentially, there's been a new round of conflict, I guess, in the last week or so, there has been massive, overwhelming use of airstrikes by Israel and Gaza. And Gaza, for those who don't know, is got, has about 2 million Palestinians who literally are trapped there. They can't leave. The borders are all essentially shut, and they have been for about 15 years with an illegal blockade by Israel and Egypt, for that matter. And there are hundreds of Palestinians dead, including dozens of children. There are a number of Israelis who are killed from Hamas rockets. 
you know, one of the things I wanted to, I guess, mention was that so much of the media coverage is very much um, TikTok. In other words, this happened now, this happened there. There's never context. There's never an explanation about why this is happening. And I was based, as you said, in Jerusalem for four years from 2016 to 2020. And one of the issues I think that's really talked about in the West is there's been, I would call, a radicalization within the Israeli Jewish population. I speak as someone who's Jewish. And what I mean by that is a radicalization that extreme views and policies are now mainstream, meaning that when you see in the last week, for example, around Israel, putting aside Gaza for a second, around Israel, pogroms, literally marauding far-right Jewish thugs breaking into people's Palestinian homes, beating Palestinians. Now, not every Israeli agrees with that. Of course they don't. But the sad truth is that a hell of a lot of people do. And you know that because those are the kind of people who are literally in the Knesset, which is the parliament there in Israel. And what's so disturbing about that is that I think it's easy in the West to say that's just a handful of bad apples. That's just some crazy lunatics running around attacking Palestinians. But the truth is that when you have regularly, not just in the last week, but regularly Jewish groups marching down Palestinian towns saying death to Arabs. This is happening all the time. And the reason I wanted to mention this is because in the West we have this, frankly, delusional belief pushed by our own government here. It doesn't really matter who's in power, whether it's Scott Morrison or Anthony Albanese, if he wins the next election. The issue is the same, this idea that Israel is a democracy, we have shared values with Israel, and of course the question is what does that mean? Well obviously Australia is a settler colonial country, Israel is very much a settler colonial country, the only difference I suppose is that, and this is not for a second to suggest Australia is doing wonderfully on those questions, we're not, but we are, at least some, having a conversation to some extent about the fact that we are a settler colonial country, which doesn't for a second excuse for example, black deaths in custody or all those issues, not at all. But in Israel itself, that conversation ain't happening. Yes, there are some Israelis, of course, who have it, of course, including friends of mine, but in general, they're not. And the reason all this is relevant and important is that I think increasingly there's this sort of dichotomy about this idea that Israel is a democracy, when in reality, it's an ethno-nationalist state. And what one thing I've often been arguing, and my next book, in fact, is about this issue, is that I fear that as this century, more and more countries embrace ethno-nationalism. And for those who don't know what that means, ethno-nationalism, whether you're Jewish, Muslim, Christian, whatever you might be, that you believe that your people, your religion, your race should have dominance. And when countries look to other countries for inspiration, where do they look? They look to Israel. Israel is the model. Israel is the model because Israel has gotten away with the 50-odd years as an occupation over the West Bank and Gaza for now 53 years. So what Israel is increasingly doing is selling technology and surveillance and an ideology to other countries. I'm talking about India, for example, and Kashmir. I'm talking about Sri Lanka in the north against Tamils. Now, what's happening in those countries is not the same as Palestine, but it's remarkably similar. And the context of what's happening now is a belief within many of the Israeli political elite and general public that you can crush political aims of the Palestinians somehow by overwhelming military force when history shows that it ain't going to happen. And Palestinians are, are resisting. And I'm not just talking about violently. I'm saying that it's resisting in a variety of ways. Mm. What was the political dimensions and scene like with Benjamin Netanyahu in the lead-up 
to this? And has that had any effect in the conflict we're seeing? In some ways it has. I mean, Netanyahu is an incredibly wily, awful, corrupt, deeply unpleasant man. I don't say that from personal experience. I've, I've seen him once in the flesh, but I don't know him personally. But he's the longest-serving Israeli prime minister. He has been in office now for over 12 years. He's had four elections in the last two years, none of which he's actually won. But somehow, through the incredibly weird, bizarre Israeli political system, he's still in power. There, were, there was an election in recently, he lost that one, and alternative political parties were trying to form a government, and fast forward to a week ago, and this broke out. Now, a cynic, maybe me, <laughs> would suggest that I don't think what's happening now is solely because of Netanyahu wanting to save his own ass, but I think it's clear that within many countries, and Israel's one of them, a so-called wartime leader is seen as popular is seen as someone you want to sort of rally around. Now, Netanyahu's party, Likud, still got the most number of seats. And in fact, certain coalition partners who were talking to the other guys are now wanting to talk back to him again. Now, what's going to happen? God knows. He's facing a corruption trial, by the way, which is ongoing. And that's, I think, part of the equation here. But one thing also is worth saying. The problem here is not Netanyahu. It's like saying in the US the problem was Trump. It's not. This doesn't mean that Trump wasn't an awful human being. I'm glad that Trump is gone. Netanyahu's going from the political scene will be a blessing. But the issues here are far deeper than one person. And the truth is that the people who Netanyahu's, um, the people who will replace him are the likely leaders on the key issues, the occupation of Palestine. They think exactly the same way. On these issues, there is no difference. Coming back to what I was saying before, there is sadly growing unanimity around Israeli political life, that some issues have bipartisan support. Like, for example, I'd argue in Australia on refugee policy. Labor and liberals are very much in lockstep on this. Yes, there are differences, sure, but in general, they're pretty much the same. And the occupation in Palestine is the same in Israel, that there is general unanimity. So Netanyahu may well fall tomorrow or next week or in six months. But on these issues, nothing much will change, sadly, which is depressing, which is why it was finally... Human Rights Watch, the biggest human rights group in the world, recently put out a statement, a report saying two things briefly. One, what Israel is doing is apartheid. And secondly, in Palestine. And secondly, what should happen is there should be targeted sanctions against Israeli individuals who are committing those abuses. And that, to me, is an important next step that I think more and more people are starting to come around to. Mm. Is there anything that you predict will happen in the coming weeks or even years? On the occupation or just yeah. in the Middle East? In the Middle East. Uh, nothing good. <laughs> um, look, in the short term, not because I'm an eternal pessimist, but you have a US administration under Joe Biden who is blindly pro-Israel. There is, as we've seen in the last week, Israel, the US has no real desire to end this conflict. The US could end it tomorrow if they wanted to, but they're choosing not to by putting pressure on Israel. One of the things I think is starting to happen is two things. One, a growing international awareness that we simply can't go back to business as usual somehow before this conflict started. So much the media kind of ignores this conflict unless there's a flare-up. Day-to-day things of Palestinians is unbelievably grim. I lived in a uh, Palestinian area for four years, and although the discrimination wasn't against me, of course I'm Jewish in a Jewish state, but it's deep daily discrimination against Palestinians all the time, and I saw it. Harassment, racial profiling physical abuse by Israeli police. 
So I think what needs to happen is a growing international awareness and, frankly, pressure, business pressure, boycotts, those kind of things, which worked eventually against apartheid South Africa. Mm-hmm. It's a long road. I mean, when I started writing about this issue 15 years ago, I sort of said to myself, I'll be doing this for the rest of my life, not because I want to be still writing about occupied Palestine, but I do feel like there needs to be greater awareness and, frankly, finally, more pressure on the Australian government. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the Australian government's one of the most pro-Israel governments in the world, whether it's Scott Morrison or Malcolm Turnbull or a Labor prime minister. Mm. Labor's a tad better, but in general, not that much better. So there needs to be a shift in consciousness. And I think more and more people, including on this show, I'm sure, are aware that what Israel is doing is unconscionable and needs to change. And how does all the, the how does the present conflict feed into, say, your upcoming book? It, it, is it pretty un, sadly prescient for you? Well, I don't want to say yes. I mean, the book is out late next year, so it's still a while away. But essentially, yes, what I'm arguing in that by lots of reporting over the years is that two things. One, Palestine has become a laboratory, meaning that Israel routinely literally tests surveillance equipment and weapons on Palestinians. And after that has been done, that is then often sold, packaged and marketed as effective to the world. If people doubt this, they can Google it. It's not, it's not me to say this. This is done by Israeli arms manufacturers regularly. And already during the current conflict, there's people, Israel testing certain weapons in Gaza. I've been hearing that from some contacts at the moment. And that is then packaged up. And I think what I wanted to argue in the book is that, A, yes, that's a problem and clearly it should be opposed. But as I said, in a century that I fear is going to move more and more towards ethno-nationalism, Countries that want to mimic that against their own unwanted populations look to Israel. And as I said, that to me is is remarkable for a country of tiny size such as Israel. The idea that a very, very small nation can have such an incredibly outsized influence on global politics but also ethno-nationalism I think is deeply disturbing And again, it shows, as I'm arguing, the occupation has gone global. It's not just in Palestine anymore. It's actually gone around the world. Mm. So it's going to be a light, funny read, um, (laughs) full of lots of comedy and, you know, sex and that sort of thing. Be out late next year. Brilliant. It's going to be interesting. And you'll uh, come back and talk to us about it? Love to. Good on you. Andy Lowenstein, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks, Thanks Anthony. Thanks guys. Woo! That's right. Triple R. The award-giving Elizabeth McCarthy is here to look at literature. <laughs> G'day, Elizabeth. Good morning, Daniel. Hello, Geraldine. And hello, Aisha. It's hello. wonderful to be back in the studio for the first time with you lot in, um, I don't know, 14 months or something. Something like that. Something it's like that. It's great to see you. It's amazing. Um, Geraldine's come back with a tan after 14 yeah, months. I say that, but um, I'll yeah, go look at Daniel's in tracking backs. <laughs> Um, look, it's uh, it's my pleasure today to talk about. Um, so I was recently on the panel for the 2021 Stella Prize um, Judging Award, and um, we gave it to Evie Wilde, who um, for her novel The Bass Rock, and that's what I thought I'd talk about today. So Evie Wilde is an Australian English writer. Um, this is she's won several literary awards for previous books, and The Bass Rock is just an extraordinary triumphant work of fiction. And uh, it's a work of fiction that canvasses, <coughs> excuse me, centuries of women's um, all too real um, experiences of persecution and abuse by men. 
in the in the 1700s we meet Sarah who's running for her life after being uh, labelled as a witch in her community, a witch responsible for killing crops and um, making the soil infertile. In the 1950s, we meet Ruth, who is unknowingly wed into a marriage of convenience where her um, she inherits two children from her, partner's, her husband's previous marriage and she is... Um, basically doing most of the housework. She is tested, gaslit regularly by her husband, um, particularly when she's non-compliant. Um, and in the present, we meet Vivian, who's having recently been released from psychiatric care and trying to rediscover her place in the world. Now, this all sounds incredibly grim and heavy, mm. but there's there are moments of lightness and even humour in this novel. And so we're talking about a novel that spans hundreds of years, so th- um, over 300 years in scope. And so uh, different sections of the novel, um, the novel is divided into different sections and different time periods and it all works incredibly co- cohesively well because this is sort of a, a project, an, ambi- an ambition that could actually fail if it was in the hands of a lesser writer but the fact that she pulls it all together and just makes this riveting novel um, is is such an accomplishment. So, um, yeah. So are the characters yeah. all... the interlinked at all? Are they related? Or? Very good question. So um, a couple of them are. There's a bit of... Um, so Ruth in the 1950s, who's like the oppressed housewife, um, she uh, has a link to Vivian in contemporary times. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a couple of other char- male characters as well. So... Um, and I should also point out, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't paint every male as like a problem and um, an abuser. There are a couple of little boys in the um, in the novel who go on to become grown men. And what she seems, to, what the author seems to be sort of saying in this particular respect with these little boys who grow up into quite well-functioning men is the impact of patriarchal structures and patriarchal expectations on the lives of boys is all just as. Da- just as damaging for boys as mm. it is for girls. How is that sort of thing depicted in fiction? In this novel? Um, because you can see through the school system that the little boys are sent to and what they endure there and how they're tormented. Um, the school system is a very sort of, you know, it's a private boys' school and it sort of lays on, you know, patriarchal expectations and high achievements um, expectations on the boys at school. Mm. So, yeah, that's how it's sort of conveyed mainly. Yeah. And it goes from like, does it have like just the one character and then another and then another? Like, or does it all kind of, oh, a bit of this from this one? No, it's quite structured in that sense. So they're divided into sections, very clear sections about which time period and which characters we're talking about. And often when an author makes that decision and that choice to sort of um, have a novel set across multiple time periods mm. involving multiple characters. Sometimes you can find yourself reading books yeah. like that and thinking, I, I'm i bored with this time period and this set of characters. I want to go back to <laughs> yeah, yes. you know, these other characters. Yeah. But sometimes I'll read it and go, oh, oh, I thought I was in the 50s. Hang on, I'm in the 17th. Oh, I've go, oh yeah, and then... Well, this is where she's really clever and... You know, this is where this book is written by a master who can Mm. actually flip tone really well. And so when you're reading the early 1700s part, it's actually written in a very formal 
way that novels centuries ago were. In the ni- oh. the 1950s part is written in a particular tone that's in keeping with sort of, um, I suppose, sort of gothic menace slash, um, not horror, but a, a certain atmosphere that, say, Daphne du Maurier um, deployed in the book Rebecca. So there's this sort of menace um, and formalism still in the 1950s. And then the contemporary sections that are about Vivian and her life are written in this kind of, um, I don't want to use the word hip, but kind of just contemporary sort of um, more sassy sort of way. Mm. And so, you know, um, I don't know if you remember, but um, a few months ago on the show I reviewed a novel called Sorrow and Bliss, which is about the relationship between two sisters. And I had a lovely postcard from a listener called Elizabeth McCarthy (gasps) saying that she bought that book and really enjoyed it. I read Um, that book and really enjoyed it. Yeah, isn't it fantastic? Thank you, Elizabeth. Yeah, thank you, Elizabeth and Elizabeth. (laughs) And um, anyway, so Vivian's section is written in this tone that's reminiscent of Sorrow and Bliss. Okay. Yeah. What about the uh, – because I was of the understanding reading at Post the Wind that it was originally three novels and it was threaded together or three attempts. And When you're awarding a prize, how much do you peek behind the curtain or is it just all in the book? All in the book, Daniel. I, I, well, not just when I'm um, on a panel. I, Whenever I review a book for this show, I don't try to read blurbs at all. Yeah. I've uh-huh. – uh, it just prejudices you too much. It can often – sometimes blurbs have spoilers that are so unnecessary mm-hmm. and really spoil the experience <laughs> of reading. And I like to go into a book cold and um, it's kind of like the way I watch films and TV. I don't want to know too much about stuff. Yes. Know, what are you guys like in that regard? Oh, I'm actually terrible. Like um, I was actually reading some of the reviews of this book mm-hmm. before you came in mm-hmm. and there's – That's because I put the links as your <laughs> no, producer. No. <laughs> But there's mm. such um, really ranges and because there was this really harsh um, review of people just really struggling to push through it and just mm. with the intense themes of abuse and retribution yeah. and, yeah, and so sometimes I read other people's reviews and I'm like, oh, well, they, don't, they didn't like it so maybe yeah. I won't like it. You know, someone said to me a couple of weeks ago that they found this book um, – difficult mm. and hard to follow. Yeah. And that really hurt in in a number of ways. One of the ways it hurts me when people sort of say a novel like this is hard to follow is when you look at contemporary TV and the demands that series have on the on listeners' concentration, mm. there's something like why can't books also be difficult to follow at times? I personally didn't find it difficult to follow. I did read it twice. The second time I got so much more out of it because mm. and I was Reading the second time, I guess, with a greater appreciation of um, how incredible she is as a writer as well and how she's pulled this whole project together. Um, but, yeah, I sort of – I get a little annoyed when I hear people talk about books as, like, difficult or hard to follow or – It's like when um, someone says to me about a comedian, like, oh, I don't, I don't get it. I don't, I don't think they're funny or whatever, because like, yeah. I don't get it. I think it would be the same. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, probably. Yeah. I'm with you, though, culturally. Hmm. This television obsession, I'm sick of it. 
Oh, I, I would love to um, – I've been saying this for years now. I, I actually love TV and I'd love to watch a lot more of it. I don't I don't have time because I do books basically. Yeah. Um, and, and that's another thing people say to me and they probably say to you too, Daniel, like how do you get through so many books? It's like because I don't watch a lot of TV. Yeah. Mm. That's the only way because I'm always staggered by how people get through so many series. That's right. I am genuinely a- admiring of people – like I'm part of this um, – Facebook group and, you know, people are exchanging, you know, um, podcasts and, and film and series tips. And I don't feel like I can, can, can contribute much at all because I'm, I'm reading books all the time. Mm. But I'm staggered by how much people can get through. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and after finishing a book, I feel physically more changed than I do after a TV series. Oh, ah, I always. love that you said that. And you know what? Sometimes... I like to do my reading, particularly on a Sunday, um, you know, for at least three or four hours on a Sunday. And I come out of that reading block feeling, I know this sounds like woo, but I, I do come out of reading a chunk, for a chunk of time, feeling kind of high. Yes. Mm. You get that too. Yeah, yeah. 100%. It's like your synapses are pinging in this wonderfully kind of meditative um, yeah, you, you're meditating basically and you can't actually skip on a book either. If you don't understand something, you actually have to go back in the book and turn the pages and, yeah, yeah it's just I find it a far more um, enriching reading experience. No, that's right. It's not homework. It's not – I'm not choosing to do that over doom-scrolling algorithms because <laughs> uh, it's better for me. I just enjoy it. Yeah. Um, and so this book for you, is it, it? you never want to read again, you never want to think about it again. I mean, oh, no, obviously, I'm... obviously, it's extraordinary. But <laughs> yeah. what's your relationship with it now? Oh, I, I you'll talk I'm about re- it forever. Well, yeah, I just think it's masterful, and I, I'm just so glad it, um, that um, myself and the four other judges decided to give it to give the novel um, this award because it is the best out of an incredibly strong shortlist of five five other books. Amazing. So uh, it's called Evie Wilde, The Bass Rock. The Bass Rock, you can Google it. It's in Scotland. It's at this sort of um, isolated place in Scotland where this novel is set over centuries. So it's by Evie Wilde called The Bass Rock. And the publisher? Mm-hmm. The publisher. Oh, is it Fourth Estate, I think? Okay. It's Jonathan Cape in the UK, but I don't know yeah. if that is here. Um, okay. Well, there you go. Elizabeth McCarthy. God, it's good to see you. Good to see you too, gang. <laughs> Triple R. As part of over 100 events during Victorian Law Week, on now, the public is invited to cross-examine a panel of barristers in the Victorian bars equivalent of ABC TV's You Can't Ask That. And to tell us about it, we're joined by a Victorian barrister and a former board member of Fitzroy Legal Service, Tim Farhall. G'day, Tim. G'day. Uh, now, are you, are you too um, young to be jaded and therefore not truly representative of Victorian barristers? <laughs> I'm, I'm not as young as I look, is the way I would answer that. But um, no, I don't, I, I don't think so. You can be optimistic and still be a barrister. Okay. Uh, now, your uh, mentor, Rowena Orr. Yes. That's, that's quite a mentor you've snagged. I, indeed. I have no idea how I managed that. Um, clearly, she made a terrible mistake. But uh, yeah, I've been very fortunate. Tell us about Rowena Orr and your relationship. So, um, Rona, I worked with Rona on the Banking Royal Commission um, and some other things. Um, and look, really, what you see is what you get. She's a phenomenal advocate um, and also a phenomenal human being. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, we're really lucky now to have her as Solicitor General. Yes. Uh, now, have you uh, knowingly represented people who are guilty and do you ever phone it in? 
<laughs> no, you never phoned in. Look, I mean, <laughs> sometimes people who uh, appear to be guilty from the outside, it's not always as simple as you might think. Um, so there are barristers' rules which say that if someone tells you that they're guilty, um, you can't go into court and um, say the opposite. So if someone says if someone says to you, oh, yeah, I was there when the thing happened, you can't go into court and say on their behalf, oh, no, it wasn't there, it was somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you can do is you can show up and you can say, look, the prosecution haven't proved this, um, or you can explain that to the client and say, look, if that's what you want to do, if you want to go around telling lies, essentially, then um, I'm sorry, I can't help you. Yeah. So, I mean, I've certainly acted for people who have admitted to doing stuff um, and you go into court and you do the plea um, and you try to tell the court their side of the story. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Yeah. Does that often happen? Sorry, if, you know, does someone that pleads guilty to something, is that kind of the end of it or do they get a chance to kind of say the circumstances around it and the, does that then in turn, um, oh, what are the words I'm looking for? Like with the sentencing, does that contribute to that? Yeah, no, absolutely. So um, a really important part of a criminal lawyer's job is actually to speak up on behalf of people who are pleading guilty. So you go into court, um, the prosecution says their bit, tells the court about what happened. Um, if they've got a criminal history, they explain that. Um, but then it's really where the defence lawyer comes in and you're really trying to tell the court about who this person is and how they've got to where they are so that the court can make a, an informed decision with all of the information. So, yeah. yeah, they absolutely have a chance to put their side. Is it a cab rank system? How did we get you as a law, uh, as our barrister? <laughs> um, I can't speak to how you ended up with me. Again, I can only apologise. Um, but, yeah, as certainly barristers operate on a cab rank rule, so that is that if um, someone offers you a brief, if someone asks you to represent them, it's within your area of expertise and they're prepared to pay your fee, then you have to accept it. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got no choice. Um, mm. So, yeah. And I was asked and I felt I had no choice. Right. So here I am. <laughs> <laughs> and are you overpaid? Well, <laughs> uh, look, wigs and gowns are expensive. Okay? <laughs> what, what, what can I say? Um, oh, look, the reality is that if you're a commercial QC, yeah, you are earning a huge amount of money and no one's going to deny that. At the same time, there are lots of barristers who do lots of legal aid work um, or you know, other sorts of work, which is not particularly well paid. Um, and the other thing is that lots of barristers do um, pro bono work. In fact, most barristers do at least some pro bono work where they mm. represent people for free. Um, and some barristers um, will sort of split their time between doing you know, perhaps quite well-paid commercial work, but then they'll spend a lot of other time representing people who can't afford it um, for free. Yeah. So um, I, I think, look, who am I to comment really? But yeah. uh, it, it's not that we're all sitting there sort of raking in the dough. Yeah. Mm. How much of the gig is uh, persuasion and not necessarily logic? <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, I would say that uh, most of the gig is persuasion, but you can't be persuasive if you're illogical. Okay. Um, at the end of the day, the kind of, at least in a courtroom, and whether that's before a judge or a jury, it doesn't really work if you show up and try to do the kind of Boston legal, um, ah! you know, <laughs> yep. super emotional, <laughs> you know, grand sweeping rhetoric type. It just doesn't work. People see through you and, and you know, you sound like a blowhard. Yeah. So um, I think that, and certainly my view, is that to be persuasive, you actually have to be logical. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, it's not going to work. Yeah. Mm. The more we learn about the, the more one person might learn about the legal system, would we become uh, happier with it or more despondent? Well, it probably depends on where you start, doesn't it? <laughs> well, that's very bastard of you. But, <laughs> but, but yeah, the more like have you, the more you've been immersed, have do you have your ideals? Uh, you know, do they remain or 
you, is it just a job for you or yeah no it's 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 definitely not just a job for me so um i've i've been uh, well, i've been a lawyer for about 10 years and even while i was at uni i was doing a lot of volunteer stuff um so i'm sort of quite enmeshed in it and um possibly lost lost some perspective if we're being honest mm-hmm. but um no look i think like any system, it's it's imperfect. Um, you know, the Australian system is imperfect. Europeans have a very different legal system, and I think that's imperfect in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, it um, it is a way to sort of resolve disputes and to um, provide some form of justice. So um, I think, again, maybe this goes back to where we started, but I'm, I'm optimistic, I guess. Mm-hmm. I think we can always do better. I think the, the legal system is always improving. Yeah. Um, but, but I'm optimistic. I'm not jaded. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you have an interest in white-collar crime? Um, because part of it is because it sort of melds to different bits of my background. So um, I have worked both as a commercial solicitor um, and also as a criminal defence lawyer. And being able to um, sort of take those worlds and put them together is quite good fun. Um, also, I think that it's just a bit different to anything else you can really do at the bar because you're not purely having an argument about money, um, but equally you're not sort of doing the run-of-the-mill um, you know, magistrate's court type crime stuff. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm not sure I can really give a better answer than that, but, yeah, I, yeah it's, um, it, it, it merges my interests. Yeah. Why is legalese important or why does it exist? Oh, you, I am the wrong person to ask yeah. because legalese is one of my pet hates. <laughs> um, so, uh, look, why does it exist? I mean, I'm tempted to say it exists because lawyers need to make themselves sound important. Mm. Um, my experience is the more legalese that appears in a legal document, usually the worse the legal reasoning is. Mm-hmm. Um, so for uh, I'm probably going to annoy a lot of people by saying that. But, um, yeah, look, I, I don't think there's any real excuse for legalese. And um, there's some terms of art which are unfortunately lodged in the language of judgment and we kind of have to use them. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it, it just bamboozles. I'd get rid of it. Uh, you're not on this panel. Who is? <laughs> so we have <laughs> a tremendous panel. Um, so uh, we've got John, John Lung. They're all barristers, I should say. <laughs> so um, John Lung, James Waters, Priya Wakley and Sean Ginsberg. Um, they come from a range of different backgrounds. John's a comedian in his spare time. James used to be an engineer. Um, Sean practices in crime. Prey's quite new to the bar, so um, look, it'll be a it'll be a fabulous event. Um, if I didn't have to be before the full federal court, I would be there. Yes. Uh, would you be? Do you want to be a performer? Is there a performative aspect to what you do and who you are? Uh, look, um, people sometimes say that barristers are failed actors, and I think that's very rude <laughs> because it's not that I'm a failed actor. It's just my talent hasn't been discovered yet. <laughs> um, look, there is there is. A performative aspect to being at the bar um, or and to appearing in court. At the same time, I think it can be a bit overrated. Again, if you watch a lot of American TV dramas, um, you know, got James Spader sort of striding around yeah. the room and waving his arms around and so on. And that, unfortunately, in Australia is not really how we do things. Mm-hmm. Um, anyone who's been into an Australian courtroom hoping for that is probably going to be a bit disappointed. Mm-hmm. At the same time, um, I think in order to be persuasive, you've got to have some degree of um, performance just to build a bit of engagement, a bit of rapport. So... Basically, I have to kind of keep a lid on it yeah. when I'm in court, but uh, but a bit. Can you wing it in court? No. Okay. <laughs> that's uh, that's the short answer. If um, unless you are some sort of legal genius, of which there are a few, but not very many. Um, no, nah, preparation is is everything. And mm-hmm. barristers, you will find at eleven or twelve in, at night before they go in court, they're sitting at their desks, stressing, yeah. and mm-hmm. getting ready. And. Uh, Nicola Gobbo, how'd that happen? (laughs) 
You know what? I'm just not even going to go there. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, so there are so many events uh, this week, about 140, I think. But uh, if you go to lawweek.net.au, you'll see them all. But this one that we're talking about is cross-examining a barrister. And uh, I think if you go to lawweek.net.au, that'll be fine. But also you can just Google it and uh, they'll do it. Now, where will you be when this is on? Uh, so when this is on, I will either be in a courtroom on William Street or I will be somewhere very near a courtroom on William Street, yeah. um, probably being told off by myself doing something <laughs> wrong. And is, is the legal uh, area or precinct kicking off? Are we back in the city? Is it happening? Uh, it's funny, just in the last sort of month or six weeks, it's really it's really picked up around there. A lot more people are in chambers and in their offices. Um, so, yeah, it's still not quite back to where it was, like everywhere, I think. Yeah. But, um, yeah, courts are starting to return to in-person stuff. There's a lot more people in silly robes wandering around. So, yeah, yeah it's coming back to life. And was, it, were you, was there any question that you wouldn't pursue law at any point? <laughs> were you just on a fast track? Uh, I don't know if I was on a fast track, but certainly uh, once I started doing a law degree, um, I pretty quickly realised that if I was going to stay in the law, then being a barrister was what I was going to have to do. Yeah. So. Do you see a lot of people drop out? Uh, of, of the law. Of the law. Um, yeah, I think especially earlier on, um, you know, a lot of people will sort of come out, or at least my experience was, a lot of people came out of high school and, you know, the careers council or whatever had said, you've got great marks, you should do law. Yeah. Then they start doing law and realise it actually involves a lot of reading and uh, a lot of writing and yeah. it's full of nerds um, and maybe it's not actually for them. But, um, you know, for the right person or for the person that it fits, you know, it's a fabulous career. Yeah. Do you ever want think that you're using your brain to – you're twisting your brain to solve someone else's problem when you could select a problem in the world and approach that? I mean, I guess that's true, but I actually really like it. Like, I, I, I just really enjoy people, and I enjoy helping people with their problems. So um, that sense of being helpful I actually find tremendously rewarding. So it's not a – I don't feel like I'm twisting my brain when I could be doing something better. I feel like I'm using my brain for a good purpose. Excellent. Mm. And if people want to find you, where would they do that? Uh, just Google. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Radio. Uh, well, Tim Farhall, thank you so very much for, uh, for copying our barrage of <laughs> impertinent questions. Um, and, yes, it is the Cross-Examiner Barrister, and it takes place... Uh, Wednesday, 19th May, 1 to 2pm. Registrations are essential, so get on it. Thanks, mate. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of The Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website. Triple R.